0: I, I'm not usually in the habit of reading GQ, but in 2002, somebody alerted me to this article because of, of things I'd been teaching about, and um, I thought it was very profound. I'll post it on the, the GroupMe. I don't think it's on GQ's website anymore, but there's a, a guy who blogged it, and, and so I can share that with you. But a guy named Walter Kern, uh, if you're a movie buff, you might have seen his movie Up in the Air with George Clooney. Um, he's a pretty thoughtful writer, novelist, um, I, I, I mean, just does all kinds of sort of things. But this, this article was basically, um, what would Jesus do? Now, I know some of you probably have the bracelets. I'm not here to shame you about that. Um, but, but I am, he, here's the thing. So Walter Kern is not a, not a Christian guy. At the time, he was uh, one of the editors at GQ. And he decided to basically live seven days completely immersed in the Christian subculture and then write about what that felt like, which is actually really fascinating if you're somebody maybe who grew up in that world um, to see what it's like to somebody who didn't grow up in that world to step into it for seven days and then write about that experience. Um, He called the evangelical subculture, he calls it the ARK culture, A-R-K. And I'm going to read you a little excerpt uh, from that. He says, uh, what would Jesus do? But more important, what were Jesus' fitness secrets? If you were one of the growing millions of Americans living in the multi-million dollar Christian alternaculture, culture, in which everything in mainstream culture gets cloned and then bleached of all sinful content, you know. Day one, resolutions. Today I will pray, and remember this is 2002, today I will pray for Jewel, the singer-songwriter. Quote, that Jewel's artistry and music and poetry will draw her audience into an encounter with truth. Tomorrow, I'll pray for Paul Allen, the Microsoft billionaire, that Allen and others working on the leading edge of interactive media will pursue their objectives with integrity. And later this week, in the manner and order prescribed by praying for the world's 365 most influential people, five minutes a day to change your world, I'll pray for Michael Crichton, the author, producer, For Jesse Helms, the North Carolina Senator, and for Bill Nye, who hosts TV's Bill Nye, the Science Guy. Today, I will leave behind the fallen world of secular American pop culture and enter this self-contained parallel universe of American Christian pop culture within which I vowed to dwell exclusively for seven days and nights, watching PAX instead of NBC, letting Pat Robertson be my Tom Brokaw. But first, before I do any of those things, I will read from my new prayer book and ask God to bless Jewel with safety, meaningful relationships, and of course, success. The old Ark, the biblical Ark, constructed to save the chosen from the great flood, had two of every creature in existence. The new Ark, the cultural Ark, built to save the chosen from the great media flood, also has two of everything I'm learning. You say you're a Pearl Jam fan? Check out Third Day. They sound just like them. Same soaring guttural vocals, same driven musicianship, same crappy clothes, just a slightly different message. Repent. You say you like Grisham and Clancy-style pot boilers? Grab a copy of Ted Decker's Heaven's Wager. Same stick figure characterizations, same preschool prose, just a slightly different moral. Repent. Your kids enjoy Batman, you say? Try Bible Man. Yes. Same mask, <laughs> same cape, just a slightly different, you get it. On the Ark, every mass diversion has been cloned from internet news sites to MTV to action movies, and it's possible to live inside the spirit without unplugging oneself from modern life 24 hours a day. After a wholesome scriptural breakfast of unsweetened whole grain cereal, I start my morning with a holy workout based on a chapter from Dr. Colbert's book, Did Jesus Exercise? It's a question I never would have thought to ask, but in art culture, There's a fundamental presupposition that if one squeezes the Bible hard enough, it will yield practical guidance on any topic from personal finance to toilet training. He concludes this way. He concludes this way. What makes the stuff so half-assed, excuse my French, so thin, so weak, and cumulatively so demoralizing even to me a sympathetic ju- journalist who'd secretly love to play the brash contrarian and rate the left behind books above Tom Clancy. What's so demoralizing to me is that it has nothing to do with faith. Pretty, again, he's not a Christian, this is just his observation. The problem is lack of faith. Art culture is a bad Xerox of the mainstream, not a truly distinctive or separate achievement. Without the courage to lead, it mo- numbly follows picking up the major media scraps and gluing them back together with a cross on top. You like this magazine? You like GQ? Then check out New Man, America's number one Christian men's magazine. Subscribe to Time, you say, give world a chance. The covers are almost identical. Now, I don't know how that hits you, but if that doesn't hit you as demoralizing, then you really should read that article and feel what it feels like to people who are outside the little evangelical alternate culture bubble. Now I know some of you have been raised in that. Maybe some of you still appreciate much about that, but you need to feel and hear what it's like to those outside the church and actually what it's like to so many who've grown up inside the church and have come to conclude that maybe that's not the real world. I get a feeling, actually, that Belmont is a place where many people begin to first step outside of that world and are trying to make sense of it. And the thing is, Christians have long struggled with how to live in the world in light of Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we be in the world, but not of the world. What does that mean? But never before has the Christian culture been such a big business. And what does this mean? for those raised in this kind of world? And what does this mean for those outside of this world who might be trying to figure out what God really cares about? Because make no mistake, people look to Christians to try to figure out what God is like and what God cares about. And that should trouble us, right? Now, we actually are big believers in RUF that God is at work in spite of that. Right? But nonetheless, we don't wanna make it worse. One of my professors at seminary used to always say when we were going out uh, to the hospital to be volunteer chaplains, he'd always send us out and say, just try and make it easier for the next Christian they meet. This stuff doesn't make it easier. This stuff doesn't make it easier. It's an issue getting renewed attention as well, I think, through recent documentaries like The Shiny Happy People, did you see that? Maybe some of you did, right? And this is an issue that's important to me. It's always been important to me because I went to a place called Berkeley College of Music, um, sought to pursue a career in music, but it was also serious about my faith. How do those things go together? I wasn't raised in bizarro fundamentalism. I'm really grateful for that. Um, sometimes it's hard to believe, like, the stories I hear from some of you all. Um, but I, I really lo- learned about it soon after I was converted in ninth grade. Uh, I lived through the 90s. I worked here in Nashville in the Christian music world when literally the Gospel Music Association had a formula for how many mentions of Jesus per minute you needed to have in your song for it to actually qualify for a GMA Dove Award. They literally made a formula. How many Jesuses per minute? So that it could be a Christian song. And as Ted Turnow says, and I'll post a link to this article as well, you can also Google it, so I put the name there. Um, most Christians think of popular culture as either trivial or dangerous. In actuality, it can't be both. Because if it's really dangerous, then it's certainly not trivial. And if it's trivial, then how dangerous could it be? But beyond that, the approach To the world that so many in the church have adopted suffers from shallow views of sin, grace, and general revelation, and has made the Christian faith seem to require adopting a way of living and a way of looking at the world that doesn't seem to make much sense. It is another barrier to belief, not just for those in the church or outside the church, but even in the church, who begin to wonder. I remember uh, years ago, uh, I knew a girl who had grown up in very kind of Christian subculture, and had always heard that Buddhists were awful people, and then went to a college up in Boston and had a Buddhist roommate who was nicer than any of her catty little Christian friends that she grew up with around here. And what do you think she began to think about Christianity? She began to wonder, what else did they tell me that wasn't true? And her faith began to crumble like a house of cards. It really does matter how we represent the world we live in and the kinds of things we teach because it models, whether we like it or not, what does God actually care about? And the question is, does God care about the world? Does he truly care about all that he has made? Or does he just care about the Christian stuff? That's a serious question. It's a serious question. Let's read um, some passages of scripture. I put enough of those out there that I think you guys should be able to see. Can I get one of them? Actually, I don't have one with me. Um, Can I borrow one of those? Yeah, thank you. There's a number of passages on here. Um, I want to not read all of them yet, but I will read. We'll read John 17, 15 at the beginning, at the top of the page there, and then I'm going to read part of Psalm 19, and we'll get to some of these other passages as we go through the, the talk tonight. John 17, this is Jesus's prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer, it's at the very end of his earthly ministry where uh, he actually lets the disciples hear what he's praying about, and and it's fabulous. If you've never read John 17, you should read it. But in in that prayer, he basically, in verse 15, says this. This is his prayer. My prayer is talking about not just the disciples, but all those who would come to believe through their witness. So this is Jesus praying for you if you're a Christian in this room tonight, okay? This is, you literally can find the words that Jesus prayed for all those who would come to know him through the witness of his disciples. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. The word literally means set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. And we'll talk about that a little bit later tonight. And then Psalm 19 won't read the whole psalm, but just the first four verses. For the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the earth. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this a little more. Lord, we do thank you that you are a gracious God, a gracious God who desires to be known. And thus, Lord, you've not just given us the Bible, but you've literally given us the whole creation, which is proclaiming your glory day after day, night after night. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, A book that I read my senior year in college really, really helped me. I'd grown up in kind of a liberal Episcopalian kind of church where my priest, I know, didn't believe in the virgin birth, didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. A lot of things that I think are pretty basic to what it means to be an actual Christian. But uh, you should know that there is kind of two religions that sometimes both use the term Christian. Liberalism and Christianity, they're not always the same thing. Um, but I became a Christian through a ministry called Young Life and um, in, in high school, and then I kind of was sort of around some of this stuff, but not so deeply, not like so many of you that kind of got raised in these sorts of churches. Um, but then when I went to college, I, my senior year, I got thrown into having to teach Uh, A Bible study some of us had started the Christian fellowship at Berkeley my senior year there was a pastor who was helping us he got transferred to another state and uh, most of the folks were like hey you're getting ready to graduate why don't you take over the Bible study I was like "Uh, great I don't know what I believe about much of anything Um, I guess I need to go find some books so I started going and looking for books to figure out what I believed and I read some crazy books and I read some good books and after about a year I kind of figured out what the consensus views were and what the radical fringe views were and it really helped me a lot one of the books that really helped me was a guy named Harry Blemier's. You've probably not heard of Harry Blemier's, but he was a student of C.S. Lewis's. He wrote a book in 1964, which I believe is the year C.S. Lewis died, um, called The Christian Mind. And the point of this book is basically there is not a christian mind that is actually active in the world today and what he meant by that is we have lots of books about prayer and about bible study and about all these christian things but where is the christian conversation about science about medicine about the arts and all these sorts of things now what's interesting is harry wrote theology books and then for most of his career he taught english literature as a matter of fact he wrote the book On James Joyce Ulysses that was used as a textbook at Vanderbilt at least up until the last few years Which is not generally seen as a very Christian book if any of you guys read it or know about it I'm not going to go into it because I'd probably get in trouble So but it's not a very Christian book, but he a Christian man Wrote the book that the secular world thought was the most profound book in understanding James Joyce Ulysses, one of the most important literature books of the 20th century. Um, and then he came back at the end of his life to teaching theology. And I, this book helped me so much to think it's not just enough to think about Christian things. What does it mean to think Christianly about all of life? So what we call biblical world and life view. And what he said was, you know, a lot of people think that Christianity is life-denying rather than life-affirming. But he said, in actuality, we have a theology that makes sense of passionate longings and dissatisfactions as pointers to the divine creation of man and the fact that he is called to glory, He says, youth is constantly hungry to envelop with religious significance the yearnings aroused by natural beauty, by artistic experience, and by sexual love. Because there is no living Christian mind to interpret this hunger, many are led astray. But the fact is, the Christian worldview, the Bible does have a theology big enough to account for all of those things. My friend Steve Taylor, who teaches now uh, over at David Lipscomb, I think he teaches screenwriting and songwriting, um, wonderful guy. He wrote this article in Youth Ministry Magazine uh, back in 2001, and I love this. He said, we tend to unconsciously marginalize or be suspicious of the weird kids. He was writing to youth pastors. Oftentimes, these are the kids who don't quite fit in, who are drawn to things that are out of the mainstream, who might be a bit eccentric. These are the kids who often become artists. If we show no enthusiasm for their artistic passions, chances are their faith will play no future role in helping shape and inform their careers. A friend of mine says, these kids often hang out in the back row of the church. Chances are they're introverted and they don't have a safe place where they can exercise that gift that's so close to the heart of God, creativity. If your churches, if our churches, can be a support and refuge for budding artists, who knows what might happen. I I love that when he wrote that because it was was rare to find churches like that. Maybe some of you come to a place like Belmont's the first time maybe you felt affirmed, like I can actually connect the dots between my faith and the things that really move me, but perhaps you're still troubled by the fact that certain music or certain movies move you more than reading the Bible that ever bother you? Do you ever feel guilty about that? I know I have. Well, we need to look at a few theological um, themes in the Bible that I think can help us make sense of all this stuff. Uh, three theological categories. Sin, well, sorry, we're going to do them in reverse order. General revelation, idolatry, and common grace. And then we're going to talk about, in light of those things, how then can we live should we live? All right, so first, general revelation. General revelation, that's what we read about there in Psalm 19. The Bible is what we call special revelation. Jesus is also the word of God, special revelation. General revelation refers to how God reveals himself through the creation and in the human conscience. And here's the thing you need to understand. God's revelation of both is infallible. Infallible. That means he has perfectly revealed himself through those two things. That does not mean that he has exhaustively revealed himself through those two things, just as he has not exhaustively uh, uh, um, revealed himself even through the Bible. Uh, John Calvin's favorite verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Now what has been revealed belongs to us, but what is secret belongs to the Lord. That means there are some questions that we have that you probably have that the Bible doesn't necessarily address. That's true. That's true. Um, but the general revelation in, in the world is really important. It's general in this sense. Just as Ann Steele understood in that hymn that we sang, Thy glory in creation shines but in thy sacred word I read in fairer, brighter lines, what, my bleeding, dying Lord. The creation does not speak to us about salvation or about Jesus, who revealed god perfectly as the one who loved us and wants to marry himself to his people but the general creation the general revelation does speak to all of us it goes out to the whole world the creation is not just a static thing that we can turn to and say hey there must be a god because look at there's order in the creation it's not just a static piece of evidence, it's actually pressing on us, proclaiming God's glory. Everything God has made, Psalm 19 is saying, is preaching. Day after day, night after night, it never lets up. Everybody in this world is hearing the preaching of the creation, whether they realize it or not and everything that they do, everything that they make, is interacting with the stuff that God has made that is proclaiming his glory. In other words, whether people name the name of Christ, follow Christ or not, they're in a dialogue with God, and they may not actually even realize it. That's a core conviction of the Christian faith. I don't know if you realize that, but that is pretty central doctrine of Christianity. Everybody is hearing it, but in Romans chapter 1, which I have a little farther down on this page, we read this, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. That comes from the Bible. You need the Bible to understand that, but the wrath of God is also revealed in the creation. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, that's strong, but here's what you need to understand. As the, as the book of Romans goes on, you eventually get to chapter 7, and what you find in chapter 7 is that this trying to mute God's speaking, trying to like block it out, so to speak, which is what Paul's talking about here in Romans 1, it's true of Christians too. What we don't wanna do, we do. What we do is not what we wanna do. Sin and brokenness is not just out there, it's in us. And we're gonna talk about that a little more. Um, Idolatry, Paul is saying, is basically denying what God is saying and trying to say something else with the stuff that he's made. Uh, I remember when my wife used to work at Vanderbilt, I don't know, some of you guys are nursing majors, so maybe you're at Vanderbilt, and I don't know if this is still true. You can correct me if it's not true anymore. But back when she worked there, you might be happy to know that no one died at Vanderbilt Hospital. People expired, but you didn't use the word died. So I think it's a great example of trying to soften the reality by rewriting the words. We do that all the time. Sam uh, talked about this last week, right? When he talked about sex as just a biological function. Well, you can say that all you want, but that's a great example of trying to rewrite the meaning that God has built into it. God created sex as a way for you to say, I belong to you and I'm giving myself to you. And you can try and make it say something else, but the meaning that's built into it keeps pushing through. God gave work as a way for you to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But if you've experienced parents who made work their idol, in other words, the way that they could provide for themselves and not need God, then you've experienced the brokenness of that too. There's all kinds of ways that the stuff that God has made for particular purposes, we try to rewrite the meaning, that's idolatry trying to mute what God is saying and replace it by saying something else, if you you will, like scratching out the meaning and trying to write in our own meaning. But our own meaning doesn't really last. God's meaning keeps pushing through. All of the culture is interacting with God, whether they like it or not, Uh, but often in a reductionistic way because we often deny what God has said about what it means to be human. Walker Percy, the great Catholic novelist, said it this way, bad books lie, and they lie most of all about the human condition. My friend Steve Garber picks up on that and says this, bad books lie, they lie most of all about the human condition. Walker Percy's insight about literature and life, that bad books always lie, is true beyond the world of novels echoing into every area of study, every area of human existence. Bad economic visions always lie, and they lie most of all about the human condition. At the same is true for politics and painting, for biology and sociology. All across the curriculum, it is the view of the human condition which sets the terms of the debate. What we believe about who we are, our origin, nature, and destiny affects everything else. And this matters so much to you at this time in your life as college students, right? Because you have to bring the whole counsel of what God has said in his word to bear upon every subject. There is no neutral education. As my friend David Dark, who maybe some of you had likes to say, everything is religious. It is, everything is religious. And so often what the Bible says about what it means to be human being made in his image to glorify him and enjoy him forever, and what human flourishing really means is not fully embraced, and then our understanding of sociology, psychology, biology is incomplete and reductionistic. But Romans 1, like I said, shows that not just is God speaking and giving witness to himself, but even that all is not right with the world is being proclaimed as well, right? And all of us are trying to suppress what God is saying, right? And as I said, it's not just unbelievers. It is both Christians and non-Christians. Now, this is why popular culture can never be trivial. Because it's interacting with God's speaking. We (laughs) We need to be interested in whatever God has said. And he said more than just what he said in the Bible. And so often, even people who aren't Christians have heard things that he's saying through creation that Christians have filtered out, particularly if they've isolated themselves in the little Christian culture. I remember uh, years ago, a friend of mine used to, used to, at his concerts, used to say this. He goes, back in the days when you could actually go into record stores, and in those days, they were, the Christian records were mostly sold at Christian bookstores, which literally had a chart where, if you like this band, here's the Christian alternative. Like, so you know, that, that little, they literally had that chart. And he would say, "I defy you to browse through the records and find an ugly Christian artist, an ugly Christian artist." Right? In other words, why are the best critiques about the oppressive, arbitrary? views of beauty not coming from the church. Naomi Wolf wrote The Beauty Myth, maybe you know of it, maybe if you haven't, you should. She eventually, actually, I heard, uh, became some kind of professed Christian. Um, but the Dove commercials, right? Surely, you've not se- if you've seen those, if you haven't seen those, Wendy can post some in the group me. Um, some of the best critiques about beauty have not come from the church. And yet, the church seems to think that if we cut ourselves off from all these Bad ideas of beauty that it'll just be better inside here. And it's usually worse because we lose the reflection that the world often can give us. So often, when you separate yourselves, you also cut yourselves off from people who might see past your cultural blinders. It's important, right? But we also need to see that God shows common grace. And that may be a phrase that you've not heard about. You know about grace that changes our hearts. I talked about that from Ephesians chapter 2, that if you ask Paul, what is grace? He would say it's God making dead people alive. Grace is a really big deal. But the Bible also talks about a kind of grace that God gives to all people, Christians and non-Christians alike. And for that, I want you to look at Acts chapter 14. Now, this is Paul uh, at a place called Lystra. Lystra is not a Jewish area. This is like pagan people. As a matter of fact, when um, Paul begins to preach, the people in Lystra think that the gods have come down to them, and they begin to bring them gifts that they would offer to these Greek gods. And Paul, and I think it's Barnabas, they, they rip their shirts and they're like, stop, stop blaspheming. We are men just like you. We are not gods. And then he begins, uh, he, he says this, this is verse 15. Men, again, he's talking to them as they're trying to worship them as gods. He said, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, these idols, to the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past... He let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony, or some translations say without witness. And listen to this. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now, does that strike you as as fascinating? If you've grown up in the evangelical culture, you might think that the only people that ever taste anything of God's joy are Christians. And yet Paul plainly tells pagans in Lystra that God has shown kindness to them, not just through rain, but through crops. Crops are cultivated. It's where we get the word culture. And he has given joy into your hearts. That's not the only one, though. Look at Psalm 104, verse 14, talking about God. Again, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. So God gives good gifts, not just natural gifts, but cultivated by humans. In other words, God created a whole world full of God-glorifying potential and set mankind to bring out that God-glorifying potential, and Christians and non-Christians are both involved in that. That's what music is. That's what science is. That's what the arts are. All these things are ways that God even gives good gifts to people who don't know him. His gifts include Things like rain, but also human cultural products. My friend Ben Inman put it this way. Paul says that Lystra is a place full of God's grace. Blessing from God are present and available in pagan culture. And these are not only good, but they are expressions of God himself, his testimony in which his kindness is demonstrated. What does this mean? Well, it means that we have to recognize that God gives good gifts, even joy, to non-Christians. And we, in Psalm 104, are called to admire and give thanks for those blessings, even worship God for them. So it's not just that the, that the alternate culture has a shallow view of, of sin, and it does, because it thinks as long as we separate ourselves from all that bad stuff, we'll be fine. Along those points, I remember uh, St. Jerome. Do you know Jerome? He uh, translated the Greek and Hebrew Bible into Latin, the Latin Vulgate, very important guy. Um, At one point he said this, this is one of my favorite quotes from a monk. He said, I went out into the desert to escape the lusts of the flesh, and I found myself surrounded by visions of naked dancing women. I love that a monk said that. What's he saying? He's saying, I thought I could escape by going out in the desert, but I took all that junk with me because it's in my heart. So so this alternaculture approach has a shallow view of sin. Like Jesus said, you think you can clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is the problem. And you can't separate yourself away from that. Not only that, but I don't want you to be separated. I don't want you to be separated from the world. I want you to be in the world, but not of it. I don't want it to define you, but I don't want you to be separated from it. But it also has a shallow view of God's grace and thinks that God's grace is only available for the people in the little holy club, right? All right. It means that we don't have to try to feel guilty or try to explain away the good cultural productions of non-Christians. And you see this in Philippians 4, 8. Paul says, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I get so frustrated sometimes when people are like, is this good or is this bad? Art, for instance. And of course, there's always a telos behind good and bad. I hope you realize that because the question you should always ask when somebody asks you that is good for what? Unless you can talk about the purpose, then you aren't even ready to begin to talk about good or bad, and until you recognize that everything created by humans um, is stained and flawed, and yet still does not fail to give evidence to the creativity that God has imbued them with. It's all much more complicated. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.8, find things to praise, rather than trying to say this is good, this is bad, right? Okay, so how then do we live? I know, I know, we're running late, but let me let me just finish this. How long? How do we live in light of this? A couple practical points for us. Rather than thinking that we need to separate ourselves and create a little safety bubble art culture, Jesus wants us in the world but not of it. Not deriving our values and cues from the world. And how are we going to do that? Well, we have to be sanctified by the word. We need the Word, we need the Word of God. We need to understand it. We need the way that it gives perspective even on the creation. One of my greatest examples of this, I was talking to Mikey about this earlier, or yesterday, Psalm 8. How many of you have had the experience going out, looking at the stars and feeling like completely insignificant little puny human? Yeah, everybody has that feeling. But you know, in Psalm 8, when David says, when I consider the heavens, do you know what he says? who is man that you would consider him? When David looks at the stars, what he's blown away by is the fact that God cares about man so much. And the question is, where does he get that? How does he know that God cares about humans, even with all the vast array of the stars? How does he know that God cares about man? Well, it's through the Bible. It's through the Genesis creation account. David is having what God has said in his word interpret what he sees with his eyes. General revelation interpreted by the word of God. And that's what Jesus is saying in John 17. Thy word is truth. We need to be set apart by understanding the word, not just general, but we need to get in there and wrestle with it. What does it mean for this area that I'm studying, whatever I'm majoring in? What does God have to say about that? We are to live as a community molded by the truth even though it might seem insane to the world. One of my favorite quotes from this guy, Robert uh, in Chastity, he says, to be insane is to reject the given universals and insofar as these categories are the accepted intellectual currency of the age that produced Auschwitz, holy, holy madness is the only true sanity. I like that. Second, we have to embrace the formative power of worship. Why do we sing the songs we sing? Why do we preach the Bible every week? Because we need the truth to shape and mold and form us. Rodney Clapp, a guy I also really think a lot of, said this, Christian worship is practice in seeing through common sense. To the world of John's day in the book of Revelation, common sense was that Rome was invulnerable that Rome's Lord was the Lord of the earth, but the church in its liturgy, as seen in the book of Revelation, recalled itself to a different and true Lord. Worship is seeing through common sense. We need to be formed by the Bible. Scripture is our only rule for faith, what we're to believe and practice, how we're to live. But guys, it's not the only source because general revelation really matters. In fact, that's the difference between Biblical Christianity and fundamentalism. Fundamentalism says all you need is the Bible, but the Bible itself says you need also the world, which reveals God's goodness and his kindness. And we don't wanna be people that don't accept and listen to everything God has to say. Third, we have to renounce sanctification by separation, because it violates what Jesus prayed for, for us. And it's a naive view of sin, of course but also sanctification, separating ourselves and thinking that that will make us better, misleads people inside and outside the church about what God cares about. And it's a very serious thing to misrepresent what God cares about. The Bible is very clear that God has compassion on all that he has made. In fact, most of the time the word Christian is used in an adjective. We've lost sight of how God's creation and common grace are at work in the world. We do not have to automatically think Christian stuff is better or safer. In fact, many times it's not. And we have a theology that can explain why all those things stir us and why it speaks so powerfully. If we fail to engage one of the most powerful forces in our world, it says to people that Christianity is not actually interested in the real world. And that's a major barrier for both those inside the church and outside the church.